You're listening to Girls with Grafts, a burn community podcast created by Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors, a leading nonprofit dedicated to supporting the burn community. In this podcast, we'll talk with burn survivors, share resources to help with supporting and improving burn recovery, and discuss how to prevent burn injuries. Here are your hosts, burn survivors and Phoenix Society's marketing team, Amber Wilcox and Rachel Kudlak. Hello and welcome back to Girls with Graphs. I am Rachel Kudlak. I'm one of your hosts and I'm joined tonight by my lovely co-host Amber Wilcox. Good evening. How is everyone today? How are you doing Rachel? I'm doing well. Um, I'm really excited to have a special episode coming out today. Yeah, so we're excited to release this bonus episode in honor of Donate Life Month, which is celebrated every April and features a month full of activities to encourage organ and tissue donor registration. Uh, So without further ado, Rachel, I'm going to let you kick it off today. Yeah, and before I introduce our lovely guest for today's podcast, I do want to give a quick shout out to one of our Phoenix partners who is in the tissue donation space, Allosource. So I'm really excited to talk all more, so much more about Donate Life Month, but Allosource is a great Phoenix partner. You know, they are actually one of the largest human tissue suppliers and they provide life-saving skin allografts. So it really fits well in with our podcast name, Girls With Graphs. And we're so honored to work with Allosource because, you know, they help survivors physically heal in that acute phase. And our partnership really allows both of us Allosource and Phoenix Society to support the lifelong journey of burn survivors. So just wanted to give a quick shout out to them. Um, But without further ado, I'm really excited for today's guest, who is Jason Shurekli. I probably said that wrong. He can correct me in a quick moment. Um, But growing up, Jason had one dream, and that was to serve as a Phoenix police officer. Inspired by the tragic loss of a local law enforcement hero, Jason worked persistently towards his dream. After serving four years in the Air Force at the age of 26, he achieved his goal to work on the streets of Phoenix as a rookie police officer. Then, only 14 months into what was supposed to be a lifelong career, Jason's life took an unexpected, dramatic, and at the time, tragic turn. On the, mar- on the night of March 26, 2001, a taxi cab crashed into the rear of Jason's patrol car. Upon impact, Jason's car burst into flames, trapping him inside with temperatures reaching over 700 degrees. Through a series of miraculous and fateful circumstances, Jason survived the crash, ensuring physical and emotional catastrophe. He suffered severe burns to over 40% of his body, which drastically altered his appearance. He has undergone more than 55 surgeries just to have the ability to accomplish simple daily tasks that we often take for granted. His journey chronicles his life for life, his triumph over tragedy, and the inspiration that enables him to continue to overcome unimaginable adversity. His personal narrative amplifies that the power of the human spirit can never be underestimated or extinguished. His story is one of life, rebirth, and transformation. He represents the human experience at its very best, and we're so excited to have him on today's podcast. So thanks for joining us, Jason. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, Jason, it's a pleasure to hear all about you and, and learn about your story. That was the first time I've, I've heard about your story. So um, I want to start at the beginning okay. and talk a little bit about growing up. Um, you always wanted to be a police officer. Um, I see you've got some police officer memorabilia behind you as well. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, your love of, of you know, wanting to be a police officer and what that passion came from. Yeah, that is, uh, believe it or not, that's the actual shirt that I was wearing when I had my accident. So uh, I definitely keep it right here in my office along with, uh, we could talk more about it, but the knife that was used to cut me out of my car. And mm. so I was, I was just always felt a call to service, enamored with people in uniform. Uh, family full of military veterans, things like that. And I chose that path pretty early on. Had no idea how to go about getting it, but uh, I definitely knew I wanted to do it. So I uh, gave up 
uh, golf scholarship uh, out of high school and joined the United States Air Force. Uh, again, wanted to serve. Uh, purposes bigger than myself. Put on a uniform and got the structure and discipline I needed. Came home and uh, life changes very quickly on us when we're young. Uh, I was 22 years old and I met and married my wife, Susie. We had a couple of kids and I ended up with a wonderful job with Arizona Public Service and didn't uh, didn't pursue what I thought was going to be my dream or my, my career until uh, the death of Mark Atkinson, which happened uh, March 26th of 1999. And then it was a calling. And I went right away and I applied, got hired with uh, the city of Phoenix, which I was born and raised here. So uh, there's kind of nothing like serving the community that you are familiar with and that you have deep roots in. And I started that in September of 99, first graduating class of 2000, and I hit the streets. And then it really wasn't long after, I think it was 14 months I read when I was reading your bio that the accident happened. So can you just share a little bit more about what happened that night? Yeah, it was only 14 months. I, I mean, it takes a year to get off probation and really it, it takes three to five years to even get a grasp and a confidence in knowing what you're doing as a police officer, especially a patrol officer. So I was just, I look back on it, it felt like I did it for five minutes and I went to work on March 26th of 01. So ironically, two years to the day after Mark Atkinson was killed, it was his anniversary. So I actually went to work that day with an extra sense of duty and and pride. And I remember I drove over to, I was supposed to work from three in the afternoon to one in the morning. So I left briefing. I drove over to the spot. Phoenix is a large city, obviously. I drove over to the spot where Mark was shot. Got a beautiful memorial marker there, spent some time, you know, just making the sign of the cross, thanking him for his service and his sacrifice, thanking him for the opportunity and being uh, my why, my reason. And little did I know about eight hours from then, I was going to come very close to needing that same memorial marker that he did. So I went through a pretty quiet, boring day. Went on a couple of minor car accident calls, took a couple of paper report calls, just wasn't much going on. And about 11.20 p.m., the dispatcher came on the radio with an emergency call that uh, was not in my patrol zone. And I it kind of went in one ear and out the other, I didn't pay any attention to it, but the officers that are busy. So she came back on very quickly. Uh, and again, it was an emergency call. So I grabbed the radio and I said, I'll head that direction. Uh, long ways to travel is out of my patrol zone. So I need to run what we call code three, lights and siren, get there as quick as I can. And I was headed eastbound on Thomas Road. And just for those listeners not real familiar with Phoenix, it's about five minutes east of downtown Phoenix, a very busy intersection. There's Phoenix Children's Hospital, Arizona Heart Institute, State Route 51 overpass. And as I approached the light, it was red. So even though I'm driving with my lights and siren on, I still have a responsibility to come to a complete stop, uh, make sure that people getting on and off the freeway will yield to my emergency vehicle. It only takes a second and a half to clear an intersection. And just as I was going to proceed, I was struck from behind by a taxi cab, the driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time. And according to the investigation, he was doing 115 miles an hour when he hit me. That's, that's a crazy, crazy story. And, <laughs> and oh, it gets uh, a lot crazier. I was just taking a pause. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you could ask me a question. Well, I was going to say, wasn't there, I think I read on your website that there was a fire truck or something right at the same intersection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just if I pitched my story to, to Hollywood, they'd throw it in the trash and be like, that's not anywhere close to believable. We're not going to do it. It's, 
so yeah, my car burst into flames. It actually traveled 270 feet through the intersection. I was at that speed, that violent of a crash. I was knocked unconscious. Thank mm. God, you know, I have no memory of the impact mm. of the fire or being in that crazy chaos. Had I been yelling and screaming and and scared and sucking in all that hot air, I would have uh, died very quickly. But now, Jason, uh, did it the second you hit it, it burst into flames or the second it, it was hit uh, upon impact? Yep. Burst into flames. Wow. So went went flying across the other side of the intersection. And yeah, 50 feet from where I came wow. to rest was a Phoenix fire truck. And wow. they happened to be on their way to the same emergency call that I was going to. And they were coming from a different direction. And of course, police and fire, we don't monitor each other's radios, but they pulled up to the intersection at just the right moment and went to make a right turn. Uh, the driver, uh, they're called engineers. Her name's Rebecca Joy. And she looked to her left to make sure she could make a turn. And the world literally exploded right in front of her. And, mm. you know, I, I, I never want to lose sight of the human emotion involved. Uh, doesn't matter what uniform we're wearing, what job we're doing. We are, uh, full of emotions and until you're thrust in a situation like that you have no idea how you're going to feel react respond and i give these individuals i had not that i have a fire truck in my intersection i had the exact four people that i needed uh, they were able to turn their truck drive maybe 50 feet go to work for me along with two police officers who arrived very quickly on scene and again uh, two individuals that were very good friends of mine and they had no idea what they were rolling up on and then to see it's a police car and to think, you know, who's in there. That's one of my friends who's dying right now. And they got out of their car and uh, they all went to work, uh, which obviously uh, to, to say it's chaotic, to say it's, uh, you know, people who aren't involved in fires. And again, I was not awake, but the accurate description is a fire sounds like, you're underneath a freight train. Like it is, it, it is an intense and noisy situation, especially one that was as large. My car was completely engulfed. The flames were all the way up licking the bottom of the overpass. So it was a, it was a hell of a scene. And, you know, the firefighters have jobs to do ones on the radio, giving incident details, trying to get more units to help the engineers getting her truck prep. One of the firefighters is battling the blaze. This young rookie, poor 22-year-old kid, he given the grim task of getting me out of the car and thought for sure I was dead. Uh, so they went through a lot. And then uh, one of those officers ran up using that knife that's right behind me, cut my seatbelt, uh, tried to pull me out of the driver's side window. It's not exactly a big opening. I'm six foot three, weighed a very solid 200 pounds at the time. And Long legs, size 13 boots, uh, got stuck underneath the steering wheel and dashboard. This other police officer crawled into the cab of the car to help free my legs. And from, from the moment of impact till I was out of the car was 90 seconds. And being two and a half miles away from what I think is the best burn center in the United States, at, uh, what was then known as Maricopa County Hospital, now known as Valley Wise, uh, I was on their trauma table in less than eight minutes. It's remarkable <clears throat> and how quickly things happen um, at that time. Uh, so <clears throat> you, you kind of gave us the, the background of the accident, but when in terms of physical recovery, um, once you arrived at what's now known as Valley Wise, um, you know, we've heard you share that you didn't initially know what your injuries were like. Do you want to share a little bit about kind of, um, I know you said you don't remember the accident, right? So, um, yeah, it, it was just such a, a long, slow process in terms of the physical, the mental, the emotional, because I was two and a half months in a coma, not expected to survive. Uh, nobody survives four degree burns their head and face. That just, uh, it can't happen. And, you know, I love uh, in your introduction talking about allosaurus and uh, 
I'm going to happily tell you a lot of things about some wonderful people like the firefighters and my doctors. But uh, when you go through what I did and receive the injuries that I did, fourth degree burns to my entire head and face, the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because of tissue donation. And so two and a half months in a coma, I wake up to obviously uh, an unexpected, unimaginable nightmare. I'm blind, so I can't see myself, couldn't process. When I was being told, uh, the only thing I've ever been scared of in my life is fire. So when I told my car had caught on fire, I I went through, I mean, just the crazy range of emotions, crying every day, lost the job I love. What are my children going to think of me? Yelling and cussing at people if they even dared to walk into my room. And uh, went, went that way for a while until I had a couple of... Uh, incredible epiphanies that started me on my path of resilience. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, 28 years old at the time, and I had not been affected by much in life. I'd never experienced a death in my family. My parents were still married. All four of my grandparents were alive and married. I've got, you know, growing family. Uh, I, I mean, I just knew nothing about adversity, especially uh, the uniqueness that is a burn injury. There's nothing quite like it. So, uh, it was a very long and slow process, but I did have those realizations I mentioned that started me, uh, on the path of, of fighting and, and becoming more and more resilient and just seeing what I could accomplish. And, uh, I can tell you, uh, March 26th of this year, I had my 22nd anniversary and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't consider it uh, a bad day, a dark day, a, a, a dreadful day. Uh, it's just a nice reminder of, uh, you know, I've made it a lot farther than I ever could have tried to imagine in my mind. We talk a lot about burn anniversaries on this show and I won't steal a question from later, but um, I think that's important, right? If I know how, I used to in the beginning, like, how am I supposed to celebrate this? Or if I don't want to celebrate it, mourn it. And it's, I think there's no great, great, no right answer for it. But I definitely know there's a lot of gratitude for that day. So um, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm glad you're going to ask later because I have a, a lot of thoughts uh, and irony surrounding that. I already told you, you know, Mark Axel was killed March 26th. My burn was March 26th. And mm seems like each and every anniversary for 22 years has been something uh, different. Sometimes happy, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, I had another significant uh, tragedy happen on that same day many mm -hmm. years later. So uh, it is, it's an, it's an odd day, that's for sure. But it is. Um, uh, so I ended up, you know, spending five and a half months total in the hospital which uh, I know that sounds like a long time, but I was pretty proud of the fact that doctors thought I would be there for nine or 10 months. And I mm -hmm. fought pretty hard I, and I walked out of there, uh, went to a rehab center, tried to learn just the basics of life. I was blind. I lost half my fingers to amputation. I was down to about 115 pounds, just crazy frail and sick. So I went to a rehab center to just try and learn some of the basics of life and finally went home on August 17th of 2001. And that, that began the, the true, uh, that's when the mental and emotional adversity was like, Hey, you think the physical part was hard? Wait till, mm -hmm. wait till we go a few rounds with you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's something, I mean, I think all survivors can relate to and something we hear all the time is that, you know, initially you're just so focused on that, that physical recovery. Mostly you just, you want to go home. That's the number one goal. But then once you're home, it's shock number two, because it's like, oh, I haven't been dealing with my mental and emotional health because I've just been so focused on that physical. So what was it like when you were getting home? And if you don't mind sharing a little bit too about what your, you know, your family, your wife and your kids and how they were handling it as well. Yeah, I was both excited to go home. I was proud, like I said, of the achieving the timeline I did. 
I was incredibly scared because, you know, when you're in the hospital and you form these relationships and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I was able to just selfishly lay there and think about myself and let other people take care of me. You know, uh, there's no more strength and beauty in the world than inside vulnerability, even though it's a word we don't like to use or feel. But then I get home and yeah, part of me was like, I, I kind of want to go back, back to the hospital because this is tough. You know, I've got, uh, uh, you know, my wife stuck by my side, but she had to give up her career. She had to become my, my Uber driver every day and taking me to constant, you know, I was still doing therapy every day. I was still going to surgery every other week. I had two very young kids, a seven-year-old daughter, a, a son who turned three. And while I was in my coma, he didn't, he didn't recognize me. He would, he would say, you're not my dad. Uh, mm-hmm. And just, uh, just the craziest things. Uh, and meanwhile, I am, you know, going through the, the highs and the lows of, well, I'm still alive and I'm still a dad and I've got these huge responsibilities and I, and I want to fight. And then it was the, the claustrophobia phobia and just how terrified I was being in that complete darkness. I mean, there's hands down, nothing worse than being, at least for me, being completely blind, uh, especially after 28 years of life. But also looking back on it, I cherish the gift that I wasn't able to look in a mirror on June 12th when I woke up from my coma because I don't know that I would have mentally recovered from that. So to have those nine months, basically, uh, before I regained some of my eyesight, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it's just a journey, but then things started to, to go well. I was getting stronger with therapy. I was gaining weight. Uh, my family and I were getting through it as a family and, uh, you know, positive momentum. It's, it's an incredible thing. Just get out of the way because yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's unstoppable once it starts going. So you gained your, your sight back a little bit. Do you, you can see us today. <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of that gradual progression, so I'm sure there was a point, right, where then you were able to like look at yourself in the mirror. Um yeah. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember what that was like, kind of being able to gain your sight back? And was that something that was gradual or was that something that um, was with the help of doctors? Like, how did that, how did that progress? So my blindness was due, the heat and fire caused a lot of damage to my corneas. And what fire will do to your corneas is it will form blood vessels that Mm -hmm. cannot be taken away. And when those blood vessels are full, uh, you know, it's just a dark curtain that can't be drawn back. So uh, I I describe it as being in a pool and trying to see something at the other end underwater. Mm. It's that blurry. But, uh, you know, doctors are amazing. They use my own blood because your body mm. heals itself the best. I put blood drops in my eyes for a very long time, stopped the scars from growing. Again, can't take them away, but stopped them. Right. But yeah, to answer your question, so I was, when I woke up from that surgery, and yes, I remember this very well, uh, just to see light and colors again was, that was a huge exhale, like, okay, yeah, I'm out, at least I'm out of the darkness, right. and and then my first thought was, I, I got to see myself, but I wanted to yeah. do it alone, because I didn't know, I had asked yeah. a lot of questions to a lot of different people, so I had an idea, but people don't always want to tell you the brutal the truth. Yeah. truth because uh, and you know, I, I think it's harder to watch somebody you love go through something than it is to go mm-hmm. through it yourself. And I, I wouldn't want to be in that position. So I understand, but I didn't know how I was going to react. So I went into uh, the restroom when I got home, I closed the door, I locked the door uh, mm-hmm. just, just in case. Uh, I had a complete meltdown uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to get really close to the mirror and just kind of look at a couple inches of my face at a time. And 
I mean, I guess it was shocking, but I knew it was going to be really, really bad. And I still, I, I mean, I had bandages. I had, well, I forgot the name of it, that yellow zero form stuff hanging mm -hmm. everywhere. And, zero form was uh, my least favorite thing on this planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. Um, so the smell still gets me to this day. Yeah. So I wasn't exactly looking at uh, just my scar. I was still looking at right. at a at a patient, you know. Mm -hmm. But for as as hard as I I could say it was, it truly was a relief to finally at least understand. Mm. Had st hadn't really started the acceptance part or anything else but I could understand. And because it was nine months later, I was finally at the point that I was going to survive. So now it's my choice. What do I want to, to work on cosmetically? Mm -hmm. Like, what do I want to try to improve? And, you know, when you lose your entire appearance and your physical mm -hmm. identity, the face that I had known for all those years, I mean, it's crazy to think that one morning I looked in the mirror and didn't realize that's yeah. the last time I'd ever see that face. So, mm -hmm. um, but it, it really was, I guess in a way empowering because I, I get to choose now I get to, mm -hmm. once I, well, if I can get to acceptance, which for all the start finish lines we have in life, you're never going to be able to start anything without accepting the facts because mm -hmm. Because until you accept the facts, you have no control over altering what mm -hmm. you can control. I I didn't want to be burned. No, I didn't want to be stuck at home and not going to work. I didn't mm -hmm. want a lot of things, but I was, and mm -hmm. that was that was the fact. And so once I was able to get that, you know, soaked in, then. Uh, to have some control again, finally, was mm -hmm. very empowering, very much. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, were able to accept that and, and move forward. And, um, you know, I'm flashing forward a little bit, but uh, today you're a motivational speaker. So you are not afraid to, to get on stage and put yourself out there and be social. I'm sure that didn't happen overnight. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what what took you to kind of get there? Obviously acceptance was a big one, but um, what did you finally feel ready? Like how long before you decided to kind of get out there? And uh, You know, that's such an interesting journey. I was uh, dealing with my appearance, even though I accepted it and I, I was proud of who I was. I, I returned to work 18 months after the accident. I had another child 18 months after the accident. I ended up working with the, homicide department with the city of Phoenix. And, you know, when you're doing a job that you can speak for victims who can't speak for themselves and you've worked with families that are affected by that kind of violence and tragedy, it's, it's such an honor and so much bigger than just me. That went a long way in my recovery process. And, you know, be, it's very humbling, but I got to do a lot of things because I was injured in the line of duty and a lot of people mm -hmm. don't get those opportunities. So I had some wonderful inspirational things like carrying the Olympic torch. Uh, you know, when we had our third child, it was like the lead story on the news the night he was born. And I'm sitting in the hospital. Like, are you kidding me right now? They're just announced <laughs> that uh, the Schechterleys had a baby. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I, you know, throwing out the first pitch at a D-backs game and, stuff like that. So it was because of that and the news, I would get invited, you know, to go to schools or go to churches, things like that. And I had no idea. First of all, I was not a public speaker back then. Not something I ever thought I would, would do, didn't enjoy it, nothing. And, but my story hadn't really evolved. So I didn't know how to tell it. And then, you know, going to schools and I appreciate the teachers and educators thought it was going to be good for the kids. You know, certain ages, it wasn't good for them. So I just really immersed myself in my job and continuing to get healthier, working on 
being the dad I wanted to be. And, and then I retired from the police department five and a half years after the accident in August of 06. And it was great to just be Jason again, just, uh, you know, I came home, I learned how to play golf again, which I was, I told you I had a scholarship coming out of high school. I was pretty good. And it was one of my favorite joys in life. And I, I gave it up. That's the only thing I use the word can't on. I just quit. Uh, and then I decided to try it again. Well, I learned how to play golf again. And then I went into business for myself. Uh, not a businessman. Don't have a, you know, I'm a military guy and a cop. I know exactly nothing about <laughs> business. So, uh, but I went into business myself, turned out to be very successful. And I was really enjoying life. And so 2010, I did a speech and there was just, I think there was like 700 people in the room. It was crazy. And I got done and this guy came up to me and, you know, people want to come up once in a while and say hi or shake your hand, whatever. And this guy, I'll never forget, he only talked to me for seven quick seconds. And he had tears in his eyes and he said, Jason, I'm a New York firefighter. I was at 9-11, lost a bunch of my friends, and I'm currently going to a divorce and you changed my life today. And so, you know, I, I'm one of those lucky people that I had two aha moments in my life. You know, when Mark Axon was killed, I knew it was a calling to be a police officer. And then when... When that gentleman uttered those words to me, I knew what I was supposed to be doing. So walked out the door, got on the phone, sold my company immediately and went about learning how to be the best public speaker I can be. And been doing it now for uh, almost 13 years and it just keeps getting better and better. I, I would not trade places with anybody in this world. I wouldn't want another job. I just got back from England uh, and I was uh, speaking to a professional football team, what we would call soccer. Uh, and I mean, I was on the, uh, the field is called the pitch over there. And I was on the pitch. There's 27,000 people in the stands going crazy. And I'm like, yeah, just before I got on with you, I was ordering, a. <laughs> they, they sent me a picture of, of it. And so I ordered an eight by 10 because I want to hang it in my office, but I'm just like, look at what you got to do. Look at your life. Are you kidding me right now? It's, it just fills me with so much love and joy and motivation. And I can't wait till my next one. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. And, you know, it's crazy. I'm sure for you to look back too, because imagine someone telling you when you first woke up after your coma in the hospital, that one day you'd be a motivational speaker in front of a crowd of 27,000 people. You would have never believed them. Um, but it's that journey, it's ongoing, there's ups and downs, but, um, if you believe in yourself, you can make it there. And I love that. Yeah. And it's been very empowering also. So when I started traveling, I had to take what I call a crutch with me. You know, I had to take a friend or my dad before he passed away would go with me because how am I going to get myself through an airport? Uh, I can't sit alone to eat. I'm way too uh, apprehensive about my appearance and I don't want to disrupt other people's day. Uh, you know, this is not something you see all the time. And then I, I reached a point, it's probably about six years ago, where I finally said, you know what, Jason, you've got to stop, stop interrupting other people's lives and making them take days off work and you got to do this. And so I started traveling alone and... Oh, such a source of strength. Uh, still to this day, every time I land back at Sky Harbor Airport, it's like, you know what? You did it. And uh, and now, of course, I mean, we were really fast forwarding, but now when I go to an airport or I am sitting alone in a restaurant and I have people stare at me, sometimes I am like, why are they looking at me? And then I go, oh, that, yeah, <laughs> right. I for, like I, I forget sometimes because I feel so, I just turned 50 years old. Mm -hmm last November and happy birthday. Uh, thank you. I, I have never, I've never felt as healthy and strong physically, mentally, emotionally in every way. And then I get to go out and do this where I, I meet other people. I mean, uh, 
probably 30 to 40% of my, my speeches are to organ and tissue organizations in this country. And I mean, you want, you want to get moved. People don't even understand. I walk off the stage and I'm like, I'm the most inspired person in this room right now. This is awesome. So uh, it just continues. And like I said, I can't uh, absolutely cannot wait to get on the road again and get back out there. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, but so before I do want to dive into donate life month a little bit and tissue and donation and all that. But before we do that, I do want to ask, is there, you know, what's one piece of advice you'd want a survivor to know? I know that's a loaded question because there's probably a lot of pieces of advice, but uh, yeah, you could pick one. <laughs> pick one. For me, it is to make meaning. If mm. you don't have a purpose in life, okay. uh, you know, two of the most unseen things that we have to have to get through, we're all going to face adversity. Uh, yes, burns are unique, but that doesn't take away from people going through a divorce or fighting cancer or those who are in a wheelchair or those who simply are on their way to an important meeting and their tire goes flat and they're stranded on the side of the road. I mean, mm-hmm. adversity is adversity. And I really don't like to compare it because I don't think mm-hmm. it's fair, but you got to have grit and you got to have resilience. And mm-hmm. the only way to have those things is to make meaning. Uh, the my favorite, So I'm really big on cliches. Uh, I love, I think they're powerful. They mean something. That's why they exist. And one of my favorite movies is Tombstone. Have you ever seen it? I have not. Okay. So it's one of the most quotable movies ever. Val Kilmer plays a role that is arguably the greatest role ever played. But Kurt Russell plays the real character named Wyatt Earp. And toward the beginning of the movie, he gets into a scuffle with... uh, another person and he, he whoops on him pretty good. And then he just very calmly says, are you going to do something or just stand there and bleed? And I'm like, you know, that's such a metaphor for life. I don't care what happens. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you going to do something or just stand there and bleed? And I've learned over the years to, to openly say, no, <laughs> I'm going to do something. You, mm-hmm. you mess with the wrong person. And so that's what it is. You got to make meaning. And no matter what comes, if you have a purpose, you have a sense of direction Mm. if you you have a why or like me you have 25 whys uh you you can get through anything Mm, i so agree with that i think it's really important to to have something to focus on right with Mm. i know for me like during my recovery if i just sat there and felt bad for myself i think there were um lots of opportunities for me to go in that like spiral of thinking yeah. that I can't do something. And so setting goals, we talk about that a lot in support groups and whatnot of like, it's really important for you to set a goal for yourself, even if it's a really tiny one. Right. So um, it doesn't matter how big or small it is, but those goals are what's going to help you get back out there. Well, you bring up a support. great point. Don't ever discount the small steps. You have to mm-hmm. honor those, those small victories because that's what builds your fortress. That's what mm-hmm. builds your foundation is, is the hundreds of, of small things, right? It's mm-hmm. not, we don't just get to leap ahead and exactly. everything is everything is magically fine. So, I'm sure you didn't you know, walk out of the hospital overnight, right? So it took yeah. time and lots of rehab yeah. to get oh to there. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was, it was and, and you know, I think I missed out on a lot of that journey because I, I didn't pay attention in the way that I do now. And I probably wasn't capable of it. You know, I just had too many things a lot going on, yeah. Consuming me from physical pain to the the mental and emotional stuff. But uh once I was finally able to like, hey, you know, pay attention to what's happening every day and uh write down write it down, you know, talk mm-hmm. about it. The small the small stuff is is so important. So I'm glad you bring mm-hmm. that up. My counselor talks a lot about journaling, right? Like and being able to oh, go yeah. back and then reflect like of oh, like this is where I was. For me, it was a, right. a photo journey, right? So I can look back and even to this day go, oh my gosh, like I forgot about that. Like I was so <laughs> like you know, discounted about that and upset. But then like looking back, it was such a small thing, but it's so nice to be able to reflect on like where you were and how you far you've come. So whether it's photos or written, I think it's really important. Yeah, journaling I learned is so 
so important and it's so mm-hmm. therapeutic because when we're going so through moments, when we're going through these moments, we think, "Oh, I'll remember this." No, you no, won't. You won't. <laughs> I'm lucky no. I can remember what I had for dinner last night. And, yeah, but it's fun. You know, once in a while, I'll I'll even just flip to a. You know, what was I feeling on this Honestly. day four years ago? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I have no idea, and then I'll read it and like, wow, really? Yeah. That's and in that moment, saying. everything seems so yeah. like important to you, and then you look back and you're like, that wasn't yeah. important. Like that was a, a little thing, but it's so important. I think I, it helps you with I, mindfulness. It oh. Mindful, yes. And I, I always use the term mindfulness with meditation. Like I'm not mm. one to meditate with, I don't sit in the perfect yoga pose. I don't even know how to meditate. <laughs> but I think, I think for each of us, when you find a way to uh, Focus have on, yeah. mindfulness mm-hmm. meditation and yeah, that's, that's why journaling is so important to me because mm. I want to know what am I feeling right now? Like when I got home, you know, I was in England for nine days and it was nine days of just joy and perfection. Like I, mm. it was the most unbelievable trip of my life. And I had to come home and write down, I had to go back over my schedule and <laughs> cause right. I was already forgetting things and mm-hmm. it'll be fun to reflect on that uh, someday. Yeah. I'm a yoga teacher myself and mindfulness doesn't have to be right. Or even just meditation. Like I know for me every day and, you know, for lunchtime, I'll, you know, I, I take what I call my nap, but it doesn't always have to be a nap. Right. Sometimes just laying on the couch, closing my eyes and like not hearing anything or just focusing on, um, how often do we just sit with our, our feelings, right? It doesn't happen that often. We're so busy on our phones or things that it can be really difficult. So, you know, yeah. meditation and mindfulness doesn't have to be like, I'm sitting here, like said, in a yoga pose, like zenning out, trying to, trying right. to like, it could be just sitting with your emotions, whether that's on the, on the bed or on the couch or just even um, coloring that helps me yeah. sometimes. I think there's so many ways to kind of really focus on that, that mindfulness. Yeah. And, uh, you, I, what really helped for me was to turn what you're saying, mm. make it a habit of a usual mm. routine. So, so hard because it is so hard. And that's, I struggled with it for years. I'm like, I don't have time. I don't feel like it. I'm going through this. I've got this stress and anxiety of all the stuff I have to do today. And then I learned that what works for me is, you know what, no matter what this day is today, no matter what you're feeling when you wake up for me, like when I turn on the shower, I know I have a solid one minute before it gets warm. Well, you know what, for that one, for that one minute, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to sit here with my feelings. And just that one minute changes my Mm -hmm. entire day. If I only have three minutes, I can go to a song. If I'm lucky enough to have 30 minutes, then those are, those are the rare days. But yeah, that's a great point that people Mm -hmm. need to understand. Find the time Mm. to sit with your feelings and if it's only one minute you can do anything for a minute i mean mm-hmm. come on so again the shower is an interesting uh it's it's my crazy, i like that because it's, 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 it's funny it takes me a while yeah. for the, the water to warm up so what can you yeah. get done in that time <laughs> yeah yeah you can you can put your phone down and you can uh while you're waiting for the shower feelings. to warm up you can accomplish yeah. a lot with inside your mind mm. in 60 seconds it's pretty awesome Mm. Well, and as we mentioned, um, I know we're getting up close to some time here. So um, I love that. But I do want to talk a little bit about Donate Life Month. So April is Donate Life Month, which uh, while many people think of it as organ donation, right, when it comes to Donate Life, tissue and eye donation are also extremely important. And tissue donation highly impacts the burn survivor community. And until I was a burn survivor myself, didn't realize that how impactful tissue donation is um so rachel i'm going to turn it over to you for a little bit more yeah Yeah, and exactly until you're in the burn survivor community a lot of people like you said amber think of donate life month as just organs and it's so much more than that um and that's why we partner with allosaurus and community tissue services and integra life sciences and these tissue donation partners because like Jason mentioned earlier, that fit you need it in physical healing. So many survivors need it, those allografts, skin grafts to, 
you know, for that physical recovery to even survive a burn injury. So Jason, I'm glad you shared that, you know, you did receive those allografts, but you know, I did a little reading on you before. Um, and I know you are an advocate of donate life month and, you know, just Mm -hmm. tissue donation in general. So can you share a little bit more about, you know, why you're passionate about that, about that advocacy? Well, I didn't know for several years, uh, until after I was burned, what actually saved my life. And it was one of my doctors who now, unfortunately has passed away, Dr. Dan Caruso. Uh, he, but he shared with me the, the importance of tissue donation. And the other thing I didn't understand was I didn't have one donor because tissue is the one thing that we can't keep, right? We're going to reject it. So it's easy to talk about a heart transplant or lung transplant or kidney. But as I started to learn about tissue and, you know, that I had dozens and dozens and dozens of donors to get me through those initial weeks. And then uh, one person donating skin can help up to 120 people. That's Mm. mind boggling. And so Mm -hmm. And then when I started doing public speaking, I would go to these uh, gift of life organizations. And I'm very proud. I'm glad you mentioned community tissue services because I'm one of the most things I'm most proud of is I'm on the board for CTS. They're based in Dayton, Ohio. And I just uh, go in there at the end of April. I absolutely love everything about this. I just got back from Nevada where I did two family remembrance ceremonies, which is an incredibly emotional experience because I'm in a room. I mean, the one in Las Vegas had almost 500 people and every one of them were there because they had lost a loved one who donated something. They left something behind and the gift of life is not three words. Like it means something. Look, I I have a 20 year old son in college right now whose life should not even exist. I mean, yay, I got out of a car. Yay, I made it through a few surgeries. Look, there's a whole lot more to it. And to be able to share with these families, like just, it sounds ridiculous to say thank you, but there are no other words. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who don't have the platform that I do or the ability to share that thank you. So I try to speak on behalf of the probably hundreds of thousands of people that are out living good lives right now because of the gift of life. But tissue donation is incredibly important and it helps. It just helps so many people. So if you're, if you're willing to do it and I encourage people all the time, check the box on your driver's license application. Do not let your family be stuck in that situation while you're on a life support machine or you're, they just found out an hour ago that, you know, you died in, in, in some way and their lives are forever changed. They, that's not the time when they need to be asked. And I give a lot of credit to these people who work. I could never work <laughs> in these organizations because they have to go, go to these emergency rooms and ask these tough questions, but mm. they know, they know in their heart, they're doing it for people like us, right? Like we, we're the, we're their why and they do it. So just, if it moves you, please sign up. It's easy to do. And then the family doesn't have to do anything. The doctors see it and they take care of it. But yeah, I love talking about it. April's a big month. Again, I'm going to CTS. Uh, very proud of them. Uh, very proud of Allosaur. I, I've spoken to, I don't think you can name an organization in the 50 states that I have not spoken to mm-hmm. uh, on this topic. And it's it's something I am incredibly passionate about because I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Mm, I love that. I love that you talked about your son too, right? Like if it, I'm, it, it's the gift that, that was given to you kind of passed on even further. So that's. Yeah. And then I always beautiful. tell people, well, imagine his name's Mason. Imagine if he has a few children and then they have a few children. We are talking about one people consider this like some random tragic moment in time. And all of a sudden you're going to put endless generations of, of beauty on the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you <laughs> can't wrap your mind around that. It's just mm-hmm. awesome. And it's a beautiful thing to be 
filled with that kind of love and understanding every day. Well, as you mentioned, it's easy to register as a tissue donor. Uh, you can sign up online through your state registry and in person at your local DMV. And if you have an iPhone, you can use the health app. It sends your information to a national computer system. So it's yes. super easy to do. So easy. Um, hopefully we can change a couple of lives by uh, folks listening to this podcast and encourage them to become tissue donors as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in honor of Donate Life Month, if you're listening anytime, whether it's in April or after or far in the future, um, we encourage you to register. Amber listed those ways. It'll be in the link in our description notes as well. So just we encourage you to sign up. It's so easy to do. It's really a gift that can keep on giving. Um, and if and it is, like I said, Donate Life Month. So be sure you're following Phoenix Society, Allosaurus Community Tissue Services, all on social, their websites. There'll be so many ways that you can spread the message, get involved, help help out someone in need. And one tissue donor can save or enhance the lives of up to 75 or more recipients, just like Jason. So uh, it's important to to note that just by clicking that box, you can you can save a life. Um, so, Jason, we always ask our guests two final questions. So we're coming up on time here. Um, but first and foremost, um, I think we talked a little bit about this, but what does self-care look like for Jason? Uh, self-care. It looks like for Jason, first of all, forgive the person in the mirror because we we tend to blame ourselves for things. I was overwhelmed by guilt of the the life change I had caused my children. I was overwhelmed that I couldn't go back to work and serve my community. Uh, And I was angry at myself. And I even though I hadn't done anything wrong, the guy who hit me went to jail. But I'm not a victim. I'm, I'm accountable for what's happened. So. First of all, you have to forgive the person in the mirror. And, and you know, if, you're, if you don't love yourself, you might as well be dying already. Uh, you, know, you, you don't want to look back on life when you're toward the end and, and have any kind of those regrets. But if you love yourself right now, you are living every day, every moment. And so... That's what I just find whatever moves me each and every day. It's something different. You know, today I was excited to do this podcast. Tomorrow I'll uh, be excited. I have my own podcast. I'm going to play golf today after that. I'm going to go to Charlotte and see my son. He plays baseball. Uh, I'm going to just each and every day. And that's what self-love is. It's a constant ongoing thing. And you got to nurture it and grow it, right? Definitely. And I think that goes back to what you were even talking earlier about journaling and, you know, writing down those, you know, notes, the self affirmations, just reminding yourself of that self love is so, so important. Um, And so our final question, and we touched on this a little bit earlier as well, but how or what do you do to celebrate your burn anniversary? Maybe if you even want to take a few moments and share, you know, how that's changed over the past 22 years. Um, you know, we love to hear it. Yeah. I remember the first year I was just dreading it. And I think for anybody who goes through a life changing situation, the problem with that first year, that box you're stuck in is every day you can think back to, okay, a year ago today, things were normal. Things were the way I, I want to go back to that day. Well, then when you, that first anniversary comes the day after it's like, Okay, well, a year ago today, I was in a coma. A year ago today, I was I was going to die. So things started to improve after that. And I'm not huge on on a lot of dates. I mean, I'm not a big – my 15th birthday, yeah, that was a big deal. But I, I just – it's every day is a reason to celebrate. Uh, so – and then over the years, I just – you know, I, I, I usually meet with two of the firefighters that saved me we have lunch together and that's, I still learn things that I didn't even know. Uh, I mentioned the other tragedy I had. So my 16th anniversary, my dad uh, passed away Hmm. on, on March 26, 2017. And, you know, I'm holding his hand while he died and through my tears and my gratitude of, of being 44 years old and still having my dad, I was like, you couldn't wait just one day pop are you kidding me um 
But then I remember, and it's on my Instagram post, the very next year, uh, one of the firefighters came to one of my, to my youngest son's baseball game. And it was on March 26th. And it was the first time I was, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I, that was the first year I said, I'm sick of this day. I'm sick of this number. And it was the number that my son wears intentionally to play baseball. I said, I, I don't, I don't even want to, I'm not leaving the house tomorrow. Nothing. Well, he had a baseball game. This firefighter shows up. My son has a great game and they take a picture together. And every time I look at that picture, that's the reminder that, you know what? It, it's not about the date. It, it, it was a good day. That, that was a good day. Mm. And so I, yeah, my, my anniversary, my, uh, you know, and my kids are funny. They'll, they'll text me happy birthday or, uh, you know, instead of birthday, uh, things like that. And we laugh a lot, but I think you have to deal with it in your own way. And, and some of us yeah. get really stuck on those dates and it just, it can bog us down in a, in a very bad way. So I try not to, to let mm. it in. So. Yeah. I think when you said like the, that date can bother you too. Right. I know last year on April 4th is my birth anniversary and, and ironically Rachel's is the fifth. Yeah. Rachel. Oh, so uh, the first, wow. so the first, um, so yes. we're, we're really close to each other and uh, we find that, right. Like um, last year around this time uh, I was actually back in the hospital. I had contracted sepsis. And I remember just thinking like, oh, I wow. don't want to be back in the hospital on my anniversary. And I went home on that day, but like, it's a day where you're like, what is with the fourth, right? Like, why does right. it have to be like this? And it, it brings you back to that. Like, is, is this my bad luck day? Like there are many times where I'm like, I don't want anything to do with the fourth of the month because, um, it can be a sad day. And I know my dad, his birthday was on March 4th. So it's difficult for, you know, to just realize like that date can be so, it can be just something that you're like, what is it the fourth of the month or something? But it, I think getting past that and knowing like, this is a day that I can celebrate and choosing to, you know, maybe practice mindfulness that day exactly. or just um, celebrate it. But yes, it can be really frustrating when you feel like, why this day, right? Could it be any other day that, <laughs> that I, I went through this? Uh, right. The I, isn't it amazing how when, you know, when we have the, these kind of, we call them anniversaries, but for anybody who has an anniversary of something tragic, all of a sudden that number start mm -hmm. showing up everywhere everywhere yeah it, it, it literally it, it, it's i'm like something's happening on the 26th it could be august 26th and i'm like really what is it with this number and then uh but the ironies start to really uh come into focus and you have to find your own way to yeah. to deal with those and i i, I tend to you know use humor a lot or mm -hmm. like you said just some quiet mindfulness uh, to get me through it or else I I'm no different than anybody. I, I could go down a rabbit hole in less than a second. If I gave myself the mm. opportunity to do it, exactly. I just yeah. refuse to do that. And I hope I continue to, uh, you know, uh, my angel on this shoulder and my demon on this shoulder, the demon never wins. Thank mm -hmm. goodness. Uh, the angels are pretty good fighters. So uh, mm. you just have to, keep going every single day. Thousand mm -hmm. percent. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast today and, and join us in advocating for celebrate life or donate life month. Um, but with that, you know, we have a few moments, anything last you want to leave us with today or, or the survivors that we have listening, any words of wisdom before we close out today? Uh, yeah, I just want to remind people that, Life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% how you react to it. I love thinking about, uh, you know, uh, what a Phoenix stands for. I'm born and raised in Phoenix. I was a Phoenix police officer. I actually did rise from the ashes. And I've realized over the years that no matter who you are, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your age, your race, your gender, how much money you have in the bank, we're all equal on our human spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's designed for one thing. It will take you away from risk and straight toward reward. Just let it fly. 
Well, that is beautiful, Jason. And I will be sure we include links of how to get in touch with you. I think I have your Instagram, we have your website. So um, if anyone wants to reach out to Jason uh, for any of the speaking or even just to connect with him, uh, we'll be sure to put that in the description as well, Jason. Thank you so much, ladies. It has been a true, true pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Girls with Crafts. If you are enjoying this content, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.